Welcome to Radical Hope Radio. I'm Liz Feld, and I'm the CEO of Radical Hope, and I will be joined in a minute by a distinguished guest and a partner of ours, Dr. David McDuff. He's been working with us over the last nine months on a, a, a very important project that we know is going to help the behavioral health field tremendously. Uh, Radical Hope was founded early in 2018 by Pam and Phil Martin, shortly after their son died by suicide. Uh, Chris was 22 at the time, and he was a junior in college. And like many kids, he lived a complicated life. He played basketball. He had a girlfriend. He was an excellent student. He had a big social circle, and he had a very loving family. But for years, Chris had struggled with emotional isolation. Uh, he got tremendous professional help over the years. Uh, Pam and Phil, his parents, steeped themselves in the most current research. Uh, he attended many good programs, but ultimately Chris's pain was too overwhelming for him, and he, he, uh, and he died by suicide. So Pam and Phil immediately set up this foundation, Radical Hope, to address two glaring gaps that they had confronted in their years of work with Chris. And we're going to talk about both of these with Dr. McDuff in a second. The first big issue is that there is no universal standard to evaluate what programs are working that can help that help kids like Chris. Um, there are many wonderful organizations. There is a lot of meaningful work being done, but it is almost impossible to identify the programs that are evidence-based with proven results. And the Martins had this experience over and over again when they were getting Chris help. The second piece of our foundation's mission is focused on breaking the grip of emotional isolation. Uh, and to do that, we are aiming our, um, our efforts and our funding at identifying programs that can improve connectivity and improve emotional regulation. Uh, we are partnering with premier organizations across the country to help support them and help expand their services so that we can reach many more kids who are in need. So with that, I will introduce our very distinguished guest, Dr. David McDuff, who shares our concern and commitment and who has decades of experience uh, first serving his country and our country as, as an army colonel, both in combat and command and special operations. He is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, and he served there for 32 years, at least, I think. He is uh, an internationally known expert in sports psychiatry and performance medicine, and the author of the book, Sports Psychiatry Strategies for Life, Balance, and Peak Performance. And welcome, Dr. McDuff, David. And there are so many things you've done over the last 40 years that inform our approach at Radical Hope and also that I know you want to share with us um, because they're relevant for so many people in this country who are experiencing uh, anxiety, depression, substance use disorder, trauma. Um, so welcome and thank you. Uh, good morning, Liz and everyone. Uh, delighted to be here and to discuss with you, you know, critical needs of populations uh, across our wonderful uh country and uh, also internationally. I've had an unusual career. I started out as a military psychiatrist, but there I got exposed to the importance of structure and monitoring of systems of care. 
I was in charge of mental health services as well as substance services for 40,000 soldiers and family members in southern Germany and you know, had an organized approach to providing the services and evaluating their effectiveness. Uh, after that, I went to the command headquarters and was in charge of 87 substance abuse outpatient facilities and uh, 11 residential programs developing standards of care for them in terms of staffing and operational effectiveness. So that's colored my work, you know, that subsequently came in academic medicine as an addiction psychiatrist and even later uh, as a sports psychiatrist, having worked at, you know, all competitive levels. So, you know, 30,000 feet up here, David, you know, what are you seeing right now that you haven't seen in the past um, that alarms you? And what are you also seeing from uh, an opportunity perspective that, that, that we can do now that there is I think probably more national attention focused on mental health and the needs of both, you know, the youth, young adults and adults to, you know, for access to quality evidence-based services. Well, we already had an unmet need for mental health and substance services uh, in the United States and elsewhere. And, you know, epidemiological surveys demonstrated over and over again, high rates of common symptoms of distress, namely anxiety, depression, insomnia, substance misuse. And this is only accelerated with uh, the introduction of the pandemic and its restrictions in our country. In fact, there are two recent studies, one done by the CDC and one done by the NCAA on its student-athletes that showed that rates of distress for the common symptoms uh, that you see uh, in individuals are two to three times higher than they were at an already high baseline. So you know, what concerns me is, two, the, the level of distress, and three, uh, the in- inadequate number of resources we have to meet these demands. You know, mental health service systems are struggling to find enough providers, enough quality providers uh, to to allow for ease of access you know, in you know, urban, suburban, and rural areas. So we've got a, a rising need with an inadequate uh, system of care to address those needs. Are you seeing, um, David, in, in your practice and also from everything you're reading and you talk to, that issues around um, uh, anxiety, uh, emotional dysregulation, depression are starting much younger. And, and if so, how much of that would you say is, is due to, um, I guess what a lot of people think is the big culprit is social media or just circumstances around kids not developing or being taught coping skills, just fundamental coping, fundamental coping skills, the kind of stuff that I know you and I were, were taught growing up. I, mean, I, see, I see a lot of young persons uh, in my office practice and in my work in sports, and, and I would agree that just the socialization and the basics of you know human warmth and empathy and the ability to communicate both verbally and in writing you know, just isn't being learned the way it was decades ago because most of the or a lot of the interaction comes through social media, which has a very impersonal quality to it. And that 
you know, that space that exists between two people or 10 people interacting you know, is just so fundamentally different that I don't think uh, our, our young uh, individuals are learning coping strategies, you know, surrounded by persons that they can directly talk to you know, as they go through adversity. Do you think a lot of, you know, maybe we've gotten so far past this now, but, you know, maybe five, seven years ago, there was a lot of talk about the confusion or misperception by people that kids were, that people were feeling connected because they were, you know, because of Facebook and Twitter and, you know, all this other stuff that, you know, they were actually talking to people all day or all night. But um, in fact, that's not communication or connection really at all. Um, and, and to find now that, you know, these stories, particularly I see that, you know, among middle school kids, high school kids, and, and still in college, the, the amount of um, bullying and shaming that goes on in those, um, that social media universe that has a, a staggering impact on the self-esteem, uh, self-awareness, self-knowledge of, of individuals um, that's leading to tragic outcomes. The amount and intensity of bullying and shaming is just so evident when you just go into the social media universe. And once it's out there, it's very hard to take it back. And it just snowballs when it was more at the interpersonal level and required that individuals, you know, be present face to face to have these conversations that had a natural buffering to frequency and intensity uh, that's really just not there in social media. And you see distress levels coming even in anticipation of being shamed uh, or ghosted, you know, not being paid attention to in social media. So even though on the surface of it, it appears as if there's more connection the quality of the connection seems in, insufficient to give one an internalized sense of safety and security. No, I know, and you know, there, you know, one of the the um, statistics around opioid uh, abuse and deaths from from opioids um, really started to come out. There was a lot of, and this has happened, I know, historically when there have been, you know, a, a series of uh, gun violence incidents or school shootings. The, people immediately turn to, is it social media? Is it these violent videos? You know, what is it? But when you break it all down, it seems to me there's it's a lot more, obviously there's a lot more to it than that. And I know, you know, on the positive side here, you've done so much work well, with athletes that I know you believe could translate to the broad, to broader society, particularly for younger kids as they're developing uh, resiliency or need to develop it. Can we talk about that before we get into some of the details about what we what we were doing at uh, Radical Hope? Sure. In my work with athletes, a lot of it is focused on uh, helping individuals realize their full potential athletically. But the skills that we teach them, you know, those mental skills, you know, how to have a, a growth oriented mindset, how to be, you know, self aware, how to you know, introduce, you know, relaxation, visualization of positive outcomes, changing one's language to be self-affirming. These are all skills we use every day 
in working with athletes, but are so generalizable to you know, any group of individuals, no matter what the age. We all, to some degree, you know, have capacity you know, and talent that's not realized. It doesn't have an outlet. And so part of what we do in our work with athletes is to help them discover you know, the talent uh, that's within to unleash that consistent competitive self-confidence despite changing uh, competitive circumstances. So I'll often use examples from sport you know, over into just growth and development in general. And we're all about you know, helping individuals st- establish the types of routines uh, of daily living you know, that are uh, bring out their, their strength and confidence in a way that allows for their full potential to be realized. So is there, have you worked with trying to get those, uh, all of those um, skills and tools and, and the, that approach uh, to a broader community outside the sports world? I mean, you and I talked about this in our very first conversation last year, just how, again, how applicable and relevant all of those um, points are to anybody, to everybody. I mean, it's interesting, you know, this stuff is not really taught in school. And so if you're not, if you don't have the benefit of a a, a team connection, like you you just described that you get from sports or the kind of mentor there is there, you know, what, you know, how do we expect these people to just develop this kind of resourcefulness? And emotional intelligence. Yeah, in some ways, it is a blend of principles from emotional intelligence, positive psychology, and performance psychology, you know, all merged into a number of different strategies to prevent individuals from being overcome by distressful moments in life or even moving in the direction of developing mental health symptoms and disorders, but rather to have them feel like they've got a toolbox of stress control skills. And then beyond that, approaches that they know will raise their performance, keep their motivation fresh and active, you know, pursuing new learning. I mean, I've often asked uh, individuals, you know, in my practice and in my teachings at the universities with medical students and residents, I said, do you think learning is a drive? And I always get puzzled looks. And they said, you mean like thirst and hunger? Uh, I said, yes, is learning a natural drive? Do you see it in evidence in even small children. And they go, well, well, now that you say that, yes. And I've always believed that, that, you know, it's there waiting to be opened up and focused. And so we would use a simple mental skill of improving focus to have an individual take a talent, you know, and create a target for its expression and then nurture it along the way. Taking an, an individual talent, no matter who the individual is. It's That's the, right. Right, just yeah. the process. No, you know, it's, um, I'm so glad you brought up mindfulness. You know, mindfulness and meditation and stress management, it's remarkable how um, effective 
and, uh, all of those tools are and all those practices are across any demographic, any age group. You know, you see CEOs doing that. You see kids in kindergarten now who are learning mindfulness. There are some great mindfulness programs, even in elementary schools around the country now, that, that just the simple, really just the simple understanding of how to calm yourself down, get yourself settled, refocus, and be aware of your breathing and your acting it's probably the most useful tool of all because you can't really do much else if you don't get that, you know, get grounded there. In some ways, it's you know, teaching, you know, in our society, ways of taking small breaks, of slowing things down, of appreciating, you know, the elegant simplicity of the design of our world and the human body and just allowing yourself to you know, be connected with what's happening in any moment. I always like to teach for working persons, you know, including those that are working in front of a computer most every day, that you know, what I call a mini break, just a 30 or 45 second break where you just unplug from the task at hand and just allow yourself to refresh or reboot. I like to use a computer analogy, and it, then it makes so much sense to them. I said, because you know, our minds can get filled up with far too many things, and we need to shut that down, you know, close those programs, start back over so that our you know, focus and creativity stay unified and our approaches to task completion. Well, it's true. You know, I don't know if you know Anne Lamott. I just love her. She, she's wonderful. And uh, she, she talks a lot about this, and she has a great line, you know, that almost everything works if you just unplug it for a while and then plug it back in. And it's exactly what you just described. It's just a big break. Get yourself out of whatever that... Um, cycle is of, of stimulation or noise or activity and um, take a break and, and, and re-engage. So um, this is a good segue to talk about how you and I started partnering. Um, we, um, as I said earlier, we had two, two commitments in starting the foundation. One was to to develop a universal standard to identify programs, including programs that do things like, you know, offer meditation practices and mindfulness um, tools and evaluate there's there was no way to evaluate whether they were working and what the outcomes were and then our second goal is to, is to find the good ones and fund them and scale them but you know i i was amazed for, for many years i've worked in the in the public sector both in government and in nonprofits, and it's been shocking to me how little accountability there is in many parts of this arena you know there's little accountability on the financial side operations governance and of course in, in measuring programmatic outcomes. And there's no way for us at Radical Hope, or frankly for any other, I, I think, philanthropist or uh, funder or organization to make a, um, a sound investment in something without understanding what's actually going on um, in the program that you're, that you're investing in. You know, what are the fundamentals that are predictors of the success of a program or the failures? And so there's a lot of good stuff um, on websites and you think, wow, this looks promising. I, I, I'm going to get behind this organization. And when you dig a little bit deeper, you realize that um, many of these organizations are actually running on fumes, um, house of cards, and very little 
concrete evidence to back up that the work that they're doing is actually has long-term benefit. So um, with that in mind, you and I started to partner, or I should say you came into um, Lenyard expertise um, in helping Radical Hope develop really a um, an assessment tool, which we are calling uh, standards of, of excellence, to um, just evaluate and, and, and um, look at the tools that we think or the elements that we think of any organization that are required to um, for a program success. So if you could talk about how we did that and why you thought it was so important um, and maybe walk all of us through the, the, the four elements of the, of the standards of excellence, I think the audience would be, uh, benefit greatly. Yeah, through my years of experience as a consultant evaluating clinical and educational services, I became quickly aware that the better programs had a very, very clear written description of their mission, values, goals, objectives, the services that they offered, the audience that they wanted to impact, and then they had well-conceived outcome measures and a process for determining the effectiveness uh, of the strategies they were using to get individuals or groups to change. And so with that background in mind, we begin to think about you know, foundations who offer, you know, human services programs to, you know, audience ranging in age from preteen all the way up to, you know, older adults in their 70s, 80s, and uh, 90s. And we thoughtfully uh, put together, you know, four tools uh, that allow any foundation to either assess itself or to assess, you know, another program, you know, for potential funding. And the first is really fundamentally looking at, you know, the foundations of the organization, values, organizational structure, function, uh, financial stability, and then have they articulated uh, goals and objectives that are in concert with their values. And then we went on to uh, conduct a broad organizational survey that was thoughtfully created that's not just a way to evaluate the organization's stability and flexibility, uh, but it's also designed to help them be self-reflective in the process of responding to questions about the organization, the organization becomes more self-informed and understands that a systematic review of its governance and operations, you know, is one way uh, to bring about improvement, you know, stimulate forward-thinking ideas and and novel approaches. Uh, Then as programs are delivered, we wanted to have some outcome measures that were suggested uh, as ways to document the effectiveness on the audiences that were involved in programs and workshops. And then finally, an accountability report that would come in, you know, either quarterly or semi-annually that would just update uh, progress, much in the way, you know, project management principles are applied 
out in the construction world. Right. No, it's, you know, it's for years I've worked around and in nonprofits and I, I, the, the idea that the mission is noble enough is just wrong. You know, Larry Bossidy, who's the chairman of our um, of Radical Hope and is, you know, decades of experience leading, you know, multi-billion dollar national corporations has been so disciplined about, you know, this whole idea of focus and do. You've got to do, this stuff can sound kind of dry. You know, when you go through these four elements, you think, really, this is a little weak. It sounds like a checklist of, you know, a mortgage application. And the fact is, if we can't help these people like Chris Martin and the millions of other people who are in need, we, through programs, if we can't figure out how to get the business part right and the organizational part right and the sort of un, um, glamorous stuff right, um, because the content's not going to matter if the business fails and vice versa. You could have a spectacular business approach and not have any uh, mechanism in place to um, to evaluate how people are doing after the, either during the program or after they're done with it. So both for people who are looking, as I said earlier, to invest or people who are looking to participate in these programs, there's just got to be a way to say, wow, this is a, this looks like it's going to be a home run or this looks pretty unstable. So uh, all of these details matter tremendously. You can't, the, the, the mission discipline here is so key. You know, one of the biggest challenges we have, and, and you touched on this earlier in our conversation is the unmet need is so vast for quality behavioral health programs and for mental health services that it's, you know, it's very easy and common for good organizations to have mission creep. They start to realize, oh yeah, I I originally intended to just do X, but now I'm going to do X plus Y plus Z. And then the whole thing collapses. So a a core part of what we put together here with this, um, with these standards is really making sure that the program set out to execute what they originally committed to do with their missions. And I, I know that was a big passion and part of your of your thinking. I mean, one of the things that I I like to ask if I'm working with an individual or an organization right up front, which surprises them, is what would you like to see change, and how are you intending to make that happen, and how will you know when change has occurred, and that simple. A logical sequence will often just force someone into giving thought to how you do that. So once you define what you'd like to see change, either in an individual or in uh, a population, then you have to set about with what strategy and then how will I know that change is occurring? It's challenging to do that. Uh, For uh, four years, I was the medical director of a 400-bed psychiatric hospital right at the time that we had to introduce outcome measures. And we started out with a few. We ended up with about 20. uh, And it was a lot of work to craft something that was measurable uh, and that could be measured over time, usually in years, Uh, But you can have an immediate impact when you design a service that easily engages individuals in that service and makes them feel like they're connected and that they belong. And you empower them to become more self-aware, to be able to more effectively regulate 
you know, their emotional responses to adverse circumstances. David, where have you seen the most progress uh, when it comes to, to uh, commitment to measuring? And, and where do you think that there are some parts of this broader field that just, uh, and I, this part of this can be clinical and some of this might be programmatic, but where, where do you see the biggest, the biggest weaknesses? Because, our, as you know, our commitment here at Radical Hope is to try to improve the whole field with, um, uh, by getting, you know, people like you and, and marrying them with business executives like Larry Bossidy so that we can, so we can raise the whole, the bar for everybody and the performance of, all, you know, all the people who are committed to this, but maybe not necessarily hitting the mark. I mean, what I've seen in academic medicine is that there was always a split between those that were providing clinical services and those that were conducting research. What built the bridge between those two groups is what's called services research. Uh, And that opened my eyes to the importance of designing a service uh, with, you know, clear impact in mind, staffing it correctly, having its operational hours, you know, fit with those seeking services, have strategies like outreach for engagement, uh, but then establishing outcome measures that are then monitored through evidence-based strategies over time. So, you know, that then has now been applied within federal clinical systems of care for both mental health and substance services, uh, as well as uh, large health organizations. And and I have seen it trickle down even into uh, local provider communities, even, you know, one unique program in one small county or city. Uh, The accountability sometimes comes from accreditation organizations you know, which impose certain standards for staffing and services offered and, you know, operational integrity and outcome measures. So over the last 30 years, there's been tremendous movement in this direction. And I think now there's an opportunity to introduce this into the philanthropic community, you know, taking those lessons learned both from uh, behavioral health services research and epidemiology. Well, yeah, I share that perspective a thousand percent, as you know, which is why we actually committed to do this and, and to uh, engage you and, and some of your colleagues on this, because um, this, this, frankly, this whole approach should not be limited to one piece of, of the field. Uh, it's got, our goal, as you know, is to make, once we've finished pressure testing it, and we're actually using the tool right now in some of our own program investments, uh, to see what needs to be tweaked and modified, but it will be available universally because we want every, whether it's a nonprofit, a, a school, a funder, a clinician, to have some way to either do a self check or to ch- check other, um, you know, check their partners. Because uh, without that, we're going to continue with this, um, I guess, with this inconsistency. Again, so many, you know, countless committed people, many with highly, you know, you know, highly credentialed professionally, a lot of good business folks. And yet there's no question that we are, um, we're not meeting the demand with the high quality programs that we need everywhere. 
So your view on where this, where this um, approach and all of these, uh, the, the tools within the approach can be used is, um, is critically important to this. Yeah, the last tool in the standards of excellence is the accountability report. It's been my experience that knowing that you've, you have a report with elements in it that are already defined, predetermined, that you'll have to you know, answer to, you know, puts just the right amount of pressure on an organization to stay engaged in that, you know, sometimes tedious process of monitoring the effectiveness, you know, the integrity of the intervention first. That is, are we delivering it, you know, in a similar way each time we have a workshop? And then also, are we systematically monitoring participant satisfaction, you know, par- participant emotional awareness, uh, you know, sense of well-being, and then, you know, other behavioral change that you would hope to see down the road. Yeah, the accountability piece is critical, and, and we know this. It's it, it, A lot of these organizations are running on shoestrings, so, and, and their budgets are so thin, so they'll go and solicit funds and get the money, and, the, and then the follow-up can be um, less than satisfactory. But um, so part of what I, I think is most important that we tried to do here, and it's um, in the third element of, of, the, um, of the standards, is really to identify uh, or force programs or require them to define the significance of the work they're doing and why it's it's innovative. You know, there are many programs out there doing work that really duplicates the guy in the office next door to them. And clearly that's not good enough. As, as we look at the, the statistics around suicide and, again, substance use disorder and anxiety and depression, the trajectory is heading so far in the wrong direction. And, again, it's not because there aren't a lot of good people who are trying. There are thousands of organizations, but if they're doing the same thing, uh, we know the definition of insanity, right? So I, I think as, as uh, certainly as a funder or, and as a foundation that's committed to identifying premier program and scaling it, seeing where the uh, approach is different and filling a gap and is, and is innovative and that does not just ride with the status quo, it's, it's got to be critical. It can't just be another good program that you give some money to and hope that, you know, we serve a couple more people. If we are really going to make a sea change in improving the, um, the statistics right now, and by statistics we're talking about lives, we've got, I think we've got to look at what, what, what out there is different, is that we can prove is going to work or has worked, and let's, let's – um, double down on our, 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 on our focus and investments and see those programs expand. More of the same is not going to do it. Yeah. I mean, any program that seeks to make a difference with uh, a disadvantaged you know, group of uh, young persons or you know, adults in our society goes up against this backdrop of the importance of housing, food, and occupational security. And we've seen the pandemic shine a very bright light on the challenges that we have in that regard. So taking into account the community backdrop is is a really important dimension of trying to make a difference and helping individual live you know, healthier, happier lives. 
Well, you know, this, uh, what the kids who are graduating from high school now and entering college or transitioning from middle school to high school are really facing an extraordinary, uh, just, I guess, an extraordinarily uncertain time and future. And by future, I don't mean 20 years from now, sort of where are they going to be professionally or will they be married or, you know, have a family. It's really the idea that they don't, a lot of them didn't know what was going to happen to their summer jobs, uh, their camps. Their, whether their colleges are actually going to have kids on campus this September is creating anxiety not only for them but for their families. And it's something I, I haven't ever seen. I don't know if you have in your lifetime, but I, I, I would suspect that you're quite concerned about what, what could come from all of this. I mean, in the early stages of the pandemic, I think people to some degree sort of rallied up, you know, in the restrictions mm-hmm. imposed. But as it you know, lingered on week after week after week, some disillusionment started to creep in that allowed the forces of you know, that uncertainty you know, activate a, an inner sense of insecurity. I talk, this past week, I talked with a lot of you know, recent college graduates, and when they start reflecting on their future, you know, they have to say that it's far less clear than it was even one year ago. Uh, and you know, to some extent, they feel paralyzed in moving forward, you know, having invested four, five, or six years you know, in acquiring their degree and thinking that it would have a link into you know, an occupational pathway. No, and I, you know, as you said, I think early on, this whole notion that we were all in this together, we saw a lot of actually, obviously, you know, heroism and and goodwill stories coming out from the health. The healthcare workers have been tremendous. You can, there aren't enough adjectives to describe what they've done. People doing their part, whether it was wearing, wearing masks or donating to their food pantries, but I do think a lot of that, um, you know, it's hard to sustain that and. People need, I think a lot of people, you can live with something when you know there's a, dead, a deadline or an end game. And the, um, the fact that we're now rolling into the summer here and they're still, uh, and this, this is very dramatically state to state, but, you know, reopenings of businesses and, again, some schools, some camps, some of this. Uh, but the fact that there's a lot of discussion already about what the second wave is going to be and um, that so many of these young professionals, their jobs have been either put on hold or eliminated before they've even gotten rolling. Um, it, 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 it's, it's tough. It's more than tough. I, I, I don't know that anyone's got, there, there's no one solution to it. And I think it makes our work here more important than ever before. I mean, we've encouraged individuals, both athletes and non-athletes, you know, to deal with this uncertainty by focusing, you know, on those routines that they can, insert into their lives every day and in fact use this as an opportunity you know, to develop health, fitness, and you know, higher levels of well-being. And I've had you know, several individuals who've done much more reading than they had done in their life. And a lot of the reading is self-reflective type reading where growth and development uh, can uh, occur. Uh, I ta- I've been talking recently with a, a minor league baseball player who was just sent home quickly from spring training, not knowing whether there would be a season. 
Uh, at first, it activated a strong inner sense of anxiety and uncertainty in him, and he just set about you know, grounding himself in fitness and baseball routines, but then started you know, engaging in a series of readings you know, that taught him more about himself in a three-month period of time than I think he might have learned in a decade in ordinary time. So we have to keep in mind that from adversity you know, comes growth uh, and just maintain an optimistic perspective you know, about our country uh, and our world. No, and I think it's a beautiful way to start closing this conversation because I think a lot of us have learned how um, we needed to step back and, first of all, identify what you can live without very easily. I don't know how many more things we need to buy or places we need to go um, to, to, to get centered. And, you know, interestingly, you, you look back, we went through Passover and Easter and uh, people couldn't go and worship in their own you know, houses of worship, whether it was a church or synagogue. Uh, and, and there's been a reason, there certainly has been a centering. And I, and what you just described, I, I have heard from other people, not from athletes, but from others that just say this forced, um, you know, time and opportunity to figure out, you know, where we all fit in the bigger world and how important it is to be respectful and the kindness that's required both to yourself and to your neighbors and others can get you through a lot, a lot. And I, we just have to hope that we're all going to emerge from this year. And I, and I think it will be the year because we're already here in June and st- still living it, but stronger in many, in many ways that we needed to get stronger and, and maybe more compassionate, right? There was a, a man I worked with when I worked for the Indianapolis Colts, who was their director of player engagement, who said something to, to me one day that really sort of stopped me in my tracks. He said, this world operates... Yeah, in a much better way if we orient ourselves to be in the service of others. And, you know, that was it epitomized the way he lived his life. Mm. Uh, it's just stuck with me that, you know, an orientation, you know, both within the self in terms of maintaining health, fitness, and well-being, but then, you know, through the, the strong base that you create, you know, intentionally uh, going about each hour of each day with doing something that positively Im- impacts others. And and there's so much research that supports that, that it been helping others or helping yourself. It's, um, it's, it's an, it's an, it, it happens, it happens naturally. So the more I agree, the more we can do that. It's, and you talk to people who volunteer and they'll tell you that that's exactly how they feel that they get more than they gave so, but it's a very good reminder at a time like this, for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited about uh, the standards of excellence you know, approach to you know, allowing anyone that seeks to provide services to, to persons who are at risk for mental health symptoms and disorders or uh, substance use disorders And I think we've got a lot of promise in this approach and we're going to learn much along the way and we'll we'll surely make some modifications to it. But we're launching a process now with an intent to improve the effectiveness of programs uh, for people who need them. Well, we are so privileged to have you uh, 
with us as a partner. You, as I said, for nine months, more almost a year now, you and I have been talking. You've been working on and really leading this this whole effort for us, on, certainly on all the on all the sausage making. And I, I'm excited too, and very optimistic and very hopeful. So. On behalf of everyone at Radical Hope, thank you for for your commitment to us and to the millions of people we're trying to to reach and serve through this through this new standards of excellence that we've developed. Um, for all of you who are listening, thanks so much for tuning in to Radical Hope Radio. We hope you learned something here, and we hope you'll continue to join us. For more information about Radical Hope, please visit radicalhopefoundation.org. That's our website, and you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Radical Hope underscore capital FDN. That's Radical Hope underscore capital FDN. And you can hear more of these podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. So if uh, if you'd like to do that, you can reach us there. Or if you have an Alexa, you can just simply say, Alexa, play Radical Hope Radio. Thanks again. And until next time, stay connected and stay safe. Hope is here. 